Two Sundays ago, uh, we took a historical walk of the persecution of Christians beginning from the time of Jesus all the way up to today. And it was a very quick look at 2,000 years of history. And I want to thank you for bearing with me on that Sunday of going through history, especially those of you that are not history buffs or whatever. Uh, but it was important that we did that. Since the death of Christ, there has not been a single generation of Christians who have not felt the warnings of Jesus about persecution come true. We heard the story about the, the life and the death of Christopher Love, who was martyred for his faith in Christ. You know, the history of the church is replete with stories of those who followed Christ into death for his namesake, with many accounts of those who uh, steadfastly faced beheadings, fire, all kinds of torture and everything, even to death. <clears throat> How did they do it, I've asked myself. How did they do it? What has been the mindset of those persecuted, even unto death? How were they prepared? And how can we be prepared? You know, I was thinking, we spend a, a lifetime trying to preserve our lives, don't we? A few trips to the Dr. Ashton. Um, some of us might exercise to try to, try to stay healthy and, and keep their lives going. Uh, some of us may even try good eating habits, as you can see from the donut holes over here on the table. Okay? We try to avoid suffering. We try to avoid unpleasantness. We try to avoid conflicts. Uh, all to have the better life. But how does a believer then calmly face persecution? How does a, a believer calmly face their end on this earth at the hands of those who hate God. I need to ask you, are you, are you willing, are you prepared to give up all your possessions, your family, your own life for Christ? Well, Peter wrote a letter to exiles in order to prepare them for the fiery trials of persecution that awaited them or that they already experienced. It is a letter that's written to help them be prepared for the truth that Jesus taught. Now, the scriptures I'm going to be using for this series is going to come from the New American Standard Bible. All right. Uh, if your version says something different as we're reading along and, and it's important to you, then just go ahead and raise your hand. But I'd like to remind you what, what Jesus said. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. Have you ever stopped to think about that? As a Christian, just because you are a Christian, the world hates you. The world doesn't just despise you. The world just doesn't 
put up with you, Jesus said, the world hates you. Remember the world that I said to you, the word that I said to you, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me. And did they persecute Jesus? Okay. You could say, Jesus could have said, since they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The world hates us, folks, and therefore it wants to persecute us. Paul put the same truth in different terms, if you will, making it obvious that what Jesus said was not just for his apostles. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Peter had a good idea about how his life was going to end. He knew what was going to happen to him. Remember what Jesus said to him after the resurrection? I was having this discussion with Peter in John chapter 21, verse 18. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Truly, truly, I tell you, when you were younger... You used to put on your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will put your belt on you and bring you where you do not want to go. Now he said this indicating by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Now, you and I do not have the same revelation for ourselves. We do not know what the history holds for us walking on this earth. We do not know what history holds as far as the end of this walk on earth and the beginning of glory in heaven. But are we prepared for what can happen? Are we prepared for what may happen? Are we able to encourage And comfort those who are going through persecution. Are we preparing the next generation? Our children. Our grandchildren. For what they may face. You know you and I. We live in a country. That was once greatly blessed by God. God's grace provided many protections. Along with many blessings. For his believers. For his children. He gave us a Holy Spirit that held back the evil and sinfulness of of mankind from being at its worst. Well, as God gives the people of this earth over to their sinful desires, according to Romans chapter 1, what will happen to followers of Jesus Christ? Now, if all along... With this last lesson that we had, and this, it seems to be creating anxiety in you or frightening you. Perhaps it's time to think again of your worldview. Maybe it's time to think of your view of this life. Maybe it's time to think about your commitment and dedication to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe it's time to think about our relationship with God through Christ. You know, as persecution comes, 
we could grow fearful. And that's exactly why Peter wrote to the Christians facing the coming persecutions. A letter of encouragement. It's a letter of exhortation. It's a letter of simplicity. Of the proper setting of our hearts. Our priorities. It talks about our mindset. Peter makes clear the main circumstances that are going on for writing and sending this epistle. Now, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter, if you would, please, chapter 1. Turn to 1 Peter, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 6, Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter's talking about people who are being distressed by various trials. And uh, when we get to it, this is going to be exciting. He talks about you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible. And full of glory. So he's speaking of our trials there. He speaks of our immortality, if you will. Not our immortality, but our mortality. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. He mentions, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. Talks about we have a mortality. talks about us being slandered in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you, that could be part of the persecution, slander you as evildoers. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Remember when I read about Christopher Love and his preaching to the crowds just before they separated his head from his body, he says, the one thing I am concerned about is that people are going to think that the reason I'm being killed is because I was against the government and not for Christ. Well, they will slander us as evildoers for what we believe about Jesus Christ. He also talks about honoring authority that may make them suffer unjustly. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person endures grief when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor 
with God. He also talks about the persecution coming in terms of the example of our Savior Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose. Uh, this, is a, this is a tough verse. You have been called for this purpose because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. What do you think Peter's referring to when he says following in his steps? It goes back to Christ also suffered. And he talks about suffering for the sake of righteousness. In chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Wow. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be in dread. Oh, would we really think at that time our suffering is for the sake of righteousness? And then he talks about suffering for the sake of right. In chapter 3, verse 17, Peter writes, For it is better if God should will it so. And when we get to that, that's going to be interesting. If God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And then he talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Look at... um. Well, let me see. Am I ahead of myself? Right here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. And then he even talks about the end of our suffering. In chapter 5, verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. And this is the reason he writes the letter. He tells us, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Okay. This epistle was written in the mid-60s, probably at least a year before Peter was martyred uh, in the Neronian persecutions, probably a year because we know he writes Second Peter uh, before um, he is crucified. So it's in the mid-60s. Uh, Peter will probably, when he writes this letter, he will probably be martyred in a year or two. Paul right along with him. 
Now, how could we outline this book of 1 Peter? Well, there's several ways, and this is the way I'd like us to present it. It's an outline where persecuted Christians ought to remember something. Persecuted Christians must remember, first of all, their great salvation. First thing uh, Peter gives them that they need to remember as they're entering into this time of persecution is their great salvation. And then their example before men. Look at that. It's chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 4, verse 6. That's the main body of his letter. And it talks about their example that they're setting before everyone about how they respond to persecution. And then the end of the letter talks about their great shepherd will return. Their great shepherd will return. Now there's kind of a, another way to look at that. And if we look at 1.3 through 2.10, which is their great salvation, that's basically doctrine, theology, truth. Just like when Paul writes in Ephesians or Philippians, the first few chapters talks about theology, then the end chapters talks about application. Peter does much the same thing. He starts out setting what is the doctrine, what is the theology, what is the truth that you need to know in order that you can apply during this difficult time. And then the middle part of it, chapter 2, verses 11 through Chapter 4, verse 6, talking about their example before men. Another way to look at that is living in a fallen, antagonistic world. Uh, a lot of what Pastor Farrell taught when he was going through Ecclesiastes. Living in a fallen, antagonistic world. How do you live in that world? And then the, the last part of First Peter, their great shepherd will return is your conduct as members of Christ's church. That's what he talks about. Your members, your conduct as members of Christ's church. All right, let's take a look at the first two verses. The first two verses are an introduction and give what I think is the main idea, the main theme, the main thing that Peter wants you to remember all the time when you're listening. Someone read this epistle to you what does he want you to keep in the back of your mind at all times? Let's look at verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as strangers, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's Peter's introduction. He tells um, who this is, who's writing it. It tells us that the author of the epistle is Peter, the apostle. No more identification is given. No more is needed. Everyone would have recognized that there is only one Peter who was an, an apostle. And it would have been obvious that this is Peter, the Apostle of Christ, one of the twelve. And by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's saying, this is Peter, and he's saying, I bring you a word from Jesus Christ. All right? 
His message was from the Lord. Now, we have no biblical history at all that Peter visited any of the churches that this epistle was sent to. Who was it sent to? All right. It was sent to Pontus, sent to churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right. I hope you can see that map okay. Kind of gives you the the areas there, okay? Up at the the top up here right there, that's Bithynia and Pontus. This is Galatia and Cappadocia, and this is Asia. And I put this with um, Paul's missionary journeys so that you can see a lot of the area covered would cover cities that Paul had been to. Um, but you notice up here, Bithynia and Pontus, up here, uh, no indication that Paul had ever been there. Why didn't Paul go to um, Bithynia or Pontus? Do you remember from our study in Acts? I hope you do. The Holy Spirit. What's that? The Holy Spirit wouldn't allow him. The Holy Spirit would not allow him to go, right? So the Holy Spirit, instead of going... Um, this way, the Holy Spirit took him that way. But what I want you to see is the large geographical area that this letter was sent to. That tells you to the expanse of the persecution that was supposed to happen at that time from Nero. That's what we're looking at. Okay, um, This is written to exiles, strangers, those who have been scattered, temporary residents. Um, another word that's common sometimes uses aliens, uh, members of the dispersion, the diaspora. These are believers who have had to move to a different place because of previous persecution. Uh, however, When you go back and you see how they reside as strangers, that right there, um, that's a, a common Jewish way of referring to Jews living among Gentiles outside of Palestine. So they could have just been born there or whatever, but it's Jews who are living outside of Palestine and they're living among the Gentiles. Although this letter was not written only to Jews, as we'll see later on in the, his uh, discussion. Now, it doesn't refer to the pers first persecution of Stephen, because it's not mentioning the dispersion, okay? So it's mentioning those generally who are living outside of Palestine, Pontus, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. In Acts chapter 2, verse 9, we find that there are Jews who were from Pontus and Asia and Cappadocia in Jerusalem during the Pentecost. Pontus was the home of Aquila and Priscilla. Galatia and Asia contained many of those cities visited by Paul. 
Just like other epistles, this letter would have been circulated. It would have been carried from church to church, to the individual churches, to be read out loud. That's what the, that was the purpose of, of this letter. The existence of these churches and these provinces, and when you stop to think about it, when we studied Acts, we didn't, we didn't hear anything about churches up in Pontus and Galatia. We only heard about churches that Paul visited and that were not to, to get the idea, well, that's the only place where there were churches because obviously Peter is writing to lots of churches not mentioned in the book of Acts. It kind of indicates that in these provinces, there was a lot of missionary work during the birth of the church that was never recorded in the book of Acts. Notice what he said. To those who are elect exiles, I think... um, Let me see. Which version would that one be? To those who are elect... Who's got the, the version, the Bible version that says, to those who are elect exiles? Basically between the, the newer American standard and um, I can't think of the other version right off the top of my head. One of them would say elect exiles. The other one who reside as strangers who are chosen. All right. Peter's very first voice of encouragement comes with reminding them of their heavenly origin. They may be exiles according to their earthly geography, but they are also exiles from their spiritual realm. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. I'm going to read it again. We're going to, this verse is a really important one. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world. Folks, we are not of the world. We're not a part of this world. We're just passing through this world. You are not a part of this world, but I chose you out of the world, Jesus said. And then in John chapter 17, verse 16, Jesus says, they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Jesus said, I am not of the world. We're his followers. We are not of the world. This this sets us on really thinking about what is our mindset about our life on this earth. What is our mindset? How do we view our lives? How do we view our lives um, in all eternity? This is what... Peter is trying to really help us begin, what is your mindset? Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our citizenship is. We often talk about we're citizens of this United States or whatever. Well, guess what? We are first of all citizens of heaven. That's where our citizenship is. Remember when we studied Hebrews. uh, Chapter 11, verses 13 and 14 says, from the writer of Hebrews, about the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. All these died in faith. 
without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles. Same words used with Peter on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Confessed that they were strangers and exiles. And then verse 15. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country which they left, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Folks, do you desire better? Uh, the better is not going to be here. The better is waiting for us. And the better is so much better that it's hard to describe because it is so much better. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Ashton, we may make it a hundred years on this earth. How does that compare to eternity in heaven? No comparison. No comparison at all. You're absolutely right. You know, the church is composed, you know, composed of aliens and pilgrims that are scattered throughout this world and we're all on a path to go to our eternal heavenly kingdom. We're, we're, not, we're not United States Christians. We're not American Christians. Okay? We are aliens and pilgrims. And some of us are in this part of the world. And some of us are in China. Some of us are in Egypt. Some of us are in Israel. Some of us are in France. Hey, folks, we're scattered throughout this whole world. And we're all citizens of heaven. In the epistle to Diognetus, okay, which was written the second century A.D., here's what this person wrote. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by either country, speech, or customs. They reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home, and every home is a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but hold citizenship in heaven. You know, I got thinking that nobody, I think, understands us better than missionaries. Mike and Mamie and family went to China. Okay? Big jump? No. They just, they just changed their geography. Their citizenship is still in heaven. They didn't change any citizenship or anything because Christians are scattered throughout the whole world. So from going to one place or another is, is really not that big of a thing. We are not at home in this world. We are not at home. Unbelievers are. Unbelievers are at home in this world. It is only the grace of God that we can even exist in a world under control of the prince of the power of the air and his minions. The very first truth that Peter gives to prepare 
and encouraged the listeners and us is that our home is in heaven. And we are temporarily on terra firma in these bodies. Whatever we are experiencing or will go through is just a dot on the timeline of our existence in eternity future. That needs to be our mindset. Needs to be our mindset. Over in chapter 1 of First Peter, verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds. Set your minds on what you should. And we know there's a verse that says, Set your mind on things above. As a matter of fact, that's Colossians 3, 2 through 3, that we're going to look at. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. That's what Pastor Pharaoh was preaching last Sunday. We died with Christ. We've died. Therefore, that's where we have, ought to have set our minds. That's what we should be thinking. How much during the week do you think about what's going on down here and what's waiting for you up there? How much during the week do you think about people down here versus the ones sitting on the throne in heaven? Where do you set your mind? With that truth alone, you can see that, that Peter has written a letter that is not just for persecuted Christians, but all believers who's going to face any kind of difficult times living in this sinful world. Now, Peter does not have to inform his readers that they are going through hard times or that they are coming. He doesn't have to give them the bad news like I did last week with, with all of us. He gives us the good news. He begins with the good news. He mentions what they're going to be going through to put his admonitions in context. But he really begins with the good news. So don't escape the encouraging description of Peter's listeners. I can't help think, but Peter summarized his response to the coming persecutions during the church age by one word. I think Peter summarized his whole epistle with one word, with one doctrinal truth. Look what he says. To those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. Or in your version he may have said. To those who reside as strangers who are chosen. Peter begins with that doctrinal truth. Right in the beginning. Because this is what everything that he's going to say relies on. This is where it all goes from. He's going to repeat it again in chapter 2 verse 9 where he says, you are a chosen people. You know, nowhere else in ancient Jewish or Christian writings do we find these two terms used together like this. Elect exiles, put together, or strangers chosen. Nowhere else in uh, ancient literature are we going to find that. The most important thing for hearers of Peter's epistle 
is that the relationship to their heavenly kingdom, not on this earth, is what is primary. The doctrine of election is probably one of the most important doctrines, I would say, eclipsed only by the salvation doctrines. What is election? What is being chosen by God? Okay. Um, Wayne Grudem writes, Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign pleasure. Does anybody recognize this doctrine? I would hope that you do. Doctrine of grace. Okay, it comes along with the doctrine of grace, doesn't it? That's right. Grace fits right into it. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew, in their uh, doctrinal book, uh, just define election like this. The decree of election is the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to set his love on certain individuals and on the basis of nothing in themselves, but solely because of the good pleasure of his will, to choose them to be saved from sin and damnation and to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. God chose before time began, before creation, who he would save. And as um, Ronnie says, election is rooted in grace it's rooted in the doctrines of the providence and the sovereignty of God. Peter begins his epistle. The first thing he wants them to have in their minds as they're going to listen to everything else that he's going to say is that they have been elected. They have been chosen by God for an eternal relationship with him. And why is it so important for us to understand and believe this? It's included in the logical sequence of salvation. If God makes a decision, if God chooses who he will save, it means he's also going to give them an effectual call, a call that works. And whoever receives that effectual call will respond to it. And ultimately, if God chooses to save, there is nothing to stop it and there is nothing to reverse it. That's why the doctrine of election is so important. God's choice to save is a choice to make that individual a part of his eternal kingdom. And, and that's an important point to think about because when we think of election, we think, oh, God chose me to save me. Okay, so that I can have salvation as I'm on this earth. No, God's choice, his decision was to put you into heaven. That's his choice. That's his selection. God chose before he created anything that Ed and Linda and David and Doris were going to be in heaven one of these days. That's his choice. Be said John MacArthur. What's that? That, that 
the quote there, was that John MacArthur? Yeah, um, yes, yeah. That was, um, he and Dick Mayhew put together a doctrinal book that I bought for Linda and <laughs> that I've been using, okay? Um, before creation, God saw, before creation, God saw his elect individuals as members of his kingdom in heaven. Now, here's where you start a little bit getting into the mind of God. Before creation happened, God saw you and I in heaven with him, glorifying him, praising the Lord on the throne. And that was his choice. He says, I'm choosing to put Woody in heaven in the future. That was his choice. And his choice, his choice guarantees that end result. Since God has chosen the redeemed, it has everything to do then with how do we live our lives on this earth. Okay? That's why Peter starts with this. Because of this truth, because of this doctrine, okay, it has everything to do with then how are we going to respond to persecution. Election causes us to see ourselves as temporary sojourners on this earth because we've been chosen for the eternal kingdom. That's the choice right there, for the eternal kingdom. So I'm going to tell you something. Most of Peter's epistle is not going to talk about our response to stop or to avoid persecution, but how do we live our lives as persecuted Christians? Because of election, we are assured that if we have been chosen, persecution can in no way hinder our home going. Remember what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Set your mind on this, of where your home is. Set your mind on where you're going, folks. Set your mind on what eternity is. Set your minds on your true eternal home, not on what happens on this earth. Simply put, Election reminds us, especially during times of persecution, we need to be thinking about our eternal place in heaven because that's what we were chosen for. Just like Abraham was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, that was his hope. MacArthur said about this, John MacArthur, the apostle wanted those believers to remember that in the midst of potentially great suffering and hardship, they were still the chosen of God, and that as such they would face persecution in triumphant hope. Peter begins his epistle with a message of hope. You know, people who do not believe in divine election are constantly trying to earn their way to heaven. 
never knowing for sure if they will be in heaven. They have no biblical hope. They are the ones during times of persecution that will be constantly wondering, have I said or done something to lose my salvation? Now this is a doctrine where we're going to find a lot of misunderstanding, maybe even some controversy. It's controversial today. But apparently it wasn't controversial during the time of the apostles. It's controversial today because people keep trying by attempts of their own to explain God's choosing. And uh, this is a good time to stop and say, look, when we, especially when we get into this, if you have questions, please give me your questions. I will address them. I'll address them for the whole class. Uh, you can email me your questions if you have. But this doctrine does bring up a lot of questions. Like, if God chooses who will be saved, does that mean he's decided who's not going to be saved? All kinds of questions may come up. And I'll be happy to address them all. But apparently, apparently, there was not much confusion or misunderstanding in the early church about this doctrine. It was not controversial. It was not questioned because Peter, like Jesus and Paul, did not take a lot of ink to explain this doctrine when it was mentioned. Notice he just kind of throws it out there. He doesn't say, elect, and by the way, let me give you a dissertation about election. What does it mean? How does it happen? What was God doing? That He doesn't do that. He's going to give us a, a little bit more information about it, but... Uh, when Jesus talks about choosing, when Paul talks about choosing, they do not give a doctrinal dissertation about election. Why? Because during the time of the apostles, it was just accepted as it is. It was accepted as a truth, it was accepted as a doctrine, it was accepted as coming from God. It was seen as a truth that the believers did not question. Now, notice how Peter uses it without explanation. But to encourage his listeners even more, he goes on to talk about election, the source of election. He's going to talk about that as we get uh, further into verse 2. The sphere or the spirit of election the sequel of election, and the security of election, which is what we're going to be getting to next week. Um, so I'm going to start next week, um, first of all, kind of remind us all about this doctrine of election and how it is clearly taught in the Bible. And that, along with this outline right here, probably will generate some questions. Um, it may not. You all may be so well-grounded in this doctrine that uh, there's no misunderstandings, questions, or anything at all. Uh, my buddy, Gene Thurston, isn't here this morning, and I would expect to get at least one question out of him. I can always uh, count on him uh, to help us with that. So that's where we're going to begin next week, all right? How is it taught in the Bible? Uh, what is Peter referring to when he says election? And then... Uh, following that, the, the next week we're going to get on talking about how great our salvation is. Um, 
at this point in time. Are there any questions right now? Any at all? Comments? Okay, let's pray. Most glorious and gracious Heavenly Father. God, I get excited when I read parts like this in the Bible. I get excited when I see, God, you working. God, you being sovereign. God, your providence. God, you're choosing. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have chosen us. God, you have chosen us to be with you in heaven, to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the, in the kingdom, ruling and reigning with him. But just the fact that we're going to be with you, Heavenly Father, glorifying you, praising you for all eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. I thank you for that reminder from Peter, Heavenly Father. And Lord, be with uh, Pastor Farrell as he's going to be preaching in the, the next service. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is truly the teacher to our hearts, Heavenly Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.